0: The trial of Clara Ford. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation presents a play by Alan King, based on the trial of a woman transvestite who, in 1895 in Toronto, was charged with the murder of a youth of 18. The play is part of the series Famous Canadian Trials, produced in the Montreal studios of the CBC.
1: The Queen versus Clara Ford, tried before the Honourable Chancellor Boyd and a jury at Toronto on the 30th day of April, 1895.
0: The charge, murder.
2: At first, the police thought the case would be straightforward because though murdered men don't usually talk,
3: this one did. I, Frank Westwood, believe that I am about to die. Desire to state the facts connected with my being shot. I heard the bell ring. I then went downstairs and lit the gas. I then walked to the door and opened it slightly, about fourteen inches. I saw a man standing on the platform above the outer steps. This man had a mustache, I think, and was about as tall as I am. I can't say as to age, I can't say how he was dressed. i had had some trouble with Gus Clark. The man who shot me, I think, looked like a man who chummed with him. Possibly it might have been him. Lowe is, I think, his name. He's in the nail works. His Christian name is... James.
4: That's when the case stopped being straightforward. Of course, we went and questioned Gus Clark and James Lowe... but they were able to establish beyond any doubt... that neither of them could have committed the crime. It isn't often the police have a statement from a murdered man... We had this one, and it was no good. Disappointing. We had to start from the beginning... After a day or two, a neighbor of the Westwoods came to us with some scraps of paper.
5: You see, Sergeant, they have some writing on them.
4: Yeah, just a few words. What does this one say? If you don't... And on
5: this piece it says, I will.
4: I will what? Doesn't seem to mean much.
5: Do you think this looks like a woman's handwriting, Sergeant? Mm, Might be. You know what I think? I think this suggests that the murderer was a woman dressed up as a man.
4: Well, (laughs) now I thought that was pretty far-fetched. Then Gus Clark came along with a surprising piece of information. Frank Westwood knew a girl who sometimes dressed as a man. He did? Who is she? My name's Clara Ford. She's colored. She used to live near the Westwoods. I knew she used to carry a revolver. Hmm. You say Frank knew her, Mr. Clark? Oh, yeah, sure. About five years, I'd say. Well, that was something for us to go on. Two detectives were sent to interview this Clara Ford. And in view of what they found in her room and what she said... ...it seemed that the case had become straightforward
2: again.
6: We found a man's suit in her trunk and an unloaded revolver with four cartridges. It looked as if it had been fired recently. She said she'd fired two shots at Ducks the previous spring. And on the night of the murder, she'd been at Toronto Opera House... ...with a girl named Flossie McKay. Well, when we found that bullets fired from that gun... ...bore the same marks as the bullet found in the murdered man's body... We took Clara Ford to headquarters for questioning. After some hours, she gave up.
5: Well, there's no use lying any longer. Yes, I shot Frank Westwood.
4: After that, she made a full confession to me and was charged with the crime. And when the preliminary hearing came on, she tried to plead guilty. We said that was inadmissible in a murder case. And she finally pleaded not guilty. Well, at this time, the case still seemed straightforward and Clara Ford was committed.
2: And so here she is. On trial for her life, facing Mr. Britton Osler, QC, for the Crown, as he prepares to examine Sergeant Reburn and obtain the details of her confession.
1: Now, Sergeant Reburn, will you tell his lordship and the jury just what happened when the prisoner was brought into your office? Uh, my
6: lord. Yes, Mr. Johnson. My lord, I must object to this procedure on the part of my friend for the Crown. On what ground, Mr. Johnson? On the ground that your lordship has not yet ruled whether or not the prisoner's confession is admissible.
7: Before I can rule on the admissibility of the confession, I must hear the circumstances under which it was
1: obtained. Very well, my lord. Now, Sergeant Reba, I will repeat my question. What happened when Clara Ford was brought into your office?
4: Well, we asked her to explain about the revolver and the men's clothes we found in her trunk... And also about her movements on the night of the murder. Did you caution her at that time? No, sir, not at the beginning. She wasn't arrested yet, you see. She was just there for questioning. How long was she in your office? Oh, I don't remember exactly. But it was two or three hours, I'm sure. It was very difficult to get a straight story from her.
1: Did you caution her at any time during the evening?
4: Oh, yes, sir, twice. When? Well, it was after we questioned Flossie McKay. The prisoner had told us she was at the opera house that night with uh, this uh, Flossie McKay. But while we were questioning her, another detective was interviewing Flossie. And he came into the room when we were there... and said that Flossie McKay had just denied being at the Opera House that night. Well, we asked Clara Ford what she had to say to that, and then she replied...
6: "For one moment, my lord, what my client replied is an admission... which I submit is part of the confession which your lordship has not yet ruled is admissible. My lord, I will approach the subject in another way. <coughs> Sergeant Reburn, as a
1: result of Clara Ford's reply... What did you do? I warned her she had better be careful and
4: not tell us any lies. And then I cautioned her. I said that anything she said would be taken down
1: and might be used in evidence. I see. My lord, I will stop there, subject to your lordship, permitting me to continue after you have ruled on the confession. Very well, Mr. Ursula.
4: Cross-examination, Mr. Johnson? Cross-examination. I should think there was. Long and tedious, they called it in the newspapers the next day kept on asking me about the same things over and over, turning to the jury all the time to make sure they wouldn't miss anything.
6: So then, Sergeant, after you had kept this poor girl in your police sweatbox for something like three hours without getting a confession from her, you started to make threats. My Lord,
7: I must object to this method of bullying the witness. It is cross-examination,
6: Mr. Osler. I think this witness is capable of taking care of himself. I agree with your Lordship. Now, uh, answer my question, Sergeant. After something like three hours, you started to make threats. No, sir, I did not. But you did say you had better tell no lie. Yes, sir. And you do not consider that a threat? No, sir, that is just a normal way of telling a person that it makes things worse for them if they don't tell the truth to the police. I see. And how did you say it, Sergeant? In your normal voice, in a conversational tone? Oh, yes. If you don't mind my saying so, you have a rather rough way of speaking. The effect of that... My lord...
1: I really must object to this sort of thing. The jury are perfectly capable of forming their own opinion
6: of the sergeant's manner of speaking.
7: Yes, Mr. Johnson, I think you might omit comments of that nature. Very well,
6: my lord. I have no further questions to ask this witness. Any re-examination, Mr.
7: Osler? No, my lord. Very well, then. The Gentlemen of the jury will now retire while I discuss certain matters with counsel.
2: The jury retire, and his lordship makes a statement before inviting counsel to submit argument on the subject of the confession's admissibility.
7: So far, Sergeant Reburn's story has been so fragmentary that I have only a very imperfect idea of what actually took place. The defense has taken strong exception to the action of the police. But if the detectives were to be prevented from asking any questions of suspected persons, I cannot see how they can be expected to secure necessary information. Personally, I do not know why a special sanctity should be thus thrown around criminals. Some of my brother judges I know hold different views. But if a prisoner chooses to make a statement in spite of warning, I see no reason why it should not be used. In this case, the sergeant warned the prisoner that she had better not say anything, but that if she did, she had better tell no lies. I am prepared to take the confession for what it is worth and I will reserve a case, if
6: necessary, for a higher court. With respect, my lord, I contend that the remark that she had better tell no lies was a distinct threat, and at once deprived the confession of its voluntary character, which must be essential to its admissibility.
7: I do not agree with you on that point, Mr. Johnson. Sergeant Reburn, it seems to me, made it quite clear that only after a number of discrepancies kept occurring in the prisoner's story did he warn her that she had better say nothing.
1: But if she did speak... That she should tell the truth. The point I would like to make, my lord, is this. The defence has claimed that the onus of proving that the confession was free and voluntary rests with the crown. I submit this is not so at all. And I am sure your lordship is quite well aware of this. Furthermore... As your Lordship knows, the rights of prisoners have been greatly extended by recent legislation. They are now permitted to go into the box and testify on their own behalf, and therefore there is no longer the same necessity to confine the limits of evidence within the narrow limits previously observed. I submit that the warning, don't tell lies, was a part of the general caution to the (laughs) accused. Mr Johnson,
7: have you anything further to add? No, not now, Lord. Then I rule that the remainder of Sergeant Weburn's evidence, including the confession, shall be given before the jury. We will now adjourn until one o'clock.
4: So, after lunch, they got me up in the witness box again, and I told them everything Clara Ford had said. That she had shot Frank Westwood, because one evening the previous summer, she had met him at the foot of Jameson Avenue, and he had tried to knock her down and take improper liberties with her. That on the night of the shooting, she had gone to Parkdale where Frank Westwood lived, taken a revolver, changed her clothes for man's attire on the way, and shot the young man. I repeated her detailed description of the journey home along the lakeshore and how she changed her clothes once more.
1: And did the accused make any statement about being at the Opera House that night? Yes, sir. She said she told us that at first to try and throw us
4: off the scent. But she admitted now that she hadn't been there. Are you familiar with that locality, Sergeant? Yes, sir. On November 26th, I went over the ground with Inspector Stark and Mr. Curry, the Crown Attorney, and we found everything just as she described it. What happened after the prisoner had concluded her confession? I informed Inspector Stark what happened. And he went in to see her and she repeated the story. Next morning, the prisoner told me she was going to plead guilty. But I urged her to do nothing of the kind and that she should have a lawyer. I told her a plea of guilty would not be accepted in a murder trial, but she insisted. But eventually, she did agree to change her plea? Yes, sir. And at that time, a lawyer was called to look after her interests. Thank you, Sergeant Reba. That will be all. Cross-examination? Yes, my lord. Yes, my lord, indeed. Johnson put on a real performance this time. They called it severe in the papers. But I doubt whether he did his client any good or not. After all, there was her confession, and the jury had heard it all. Somehow, a rumor had got out that Clara Ford was going into the witness box herself. I could hear people discussing I it as they Mr. Left Moro the I wouldn't miss tomorrow for
5: anything, Celia. Fancy that girl going into the witness box herself. I know. My husband doesn't agree with it, you know. He says they should never have changed the law. I don't see why not. I always thought it unfair that an accused person couldn't get up there and speak for himself.
1: You swear to tell the
6: truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. Now, well, Miss Ford, would you first tell his lordship and the jury your age and something of your history?
5: Yes, sir. I was born in Toronto and have lived here all my life, about 33 years. Both my parents are dead. I've been pretty constantly employed. Uh,
6: would you tell us now of the events last November when the police first got in touch with you?
5: Yes, sir. I was working at Barnett's shop on York Street, next to Mrs. Dorsey's, on November 20, last, when two men came in. I recognized Detective Sleeman and Porter as the men, and I saw them that day for the first time. I was pressing seams with a large iron when they entered. Sleeman went up to Barnett and began whispering to him. I don't know what he said. Barnett got up and went up onto the step with Sleeman, while Porter stood by the cell feeder looking at me. After a minute or two, Porter says, Have you got any more girls here? I says, No, there's no more. He says, Are you sure? And I says, No, there's no more. He says, You're pretty busy. And I says, Yes, we are. We're working day and night. I was alone with Porter while this was going on. And then Sleeman came in again and came over to me, and he says, We want to see your room. I said, What do you want to see my room for? He says, Well, we want to see it. So I put down the iron, went up the stairs between Mrs. Dorsey's and the shop, and Sleeman followed with Porter behind
2: The Prisoner then told of the discovery of the men's clothes and the revolver in her room, of certain questions being asked her, of how she told the detectives she had only used it to shoot ducks the previous April, and then of how she was taken to headquarters and confronted by Sergeant Reburn.
5: Reburn looked me up and down as if he'd snapped my head off and asked me my name and where I lived. He didn't talk at all like he did here yesterday, but more gruffer and snappier. And then he says...
4: Where were you that night? October 6th.
5: At the theater.
4: How were you dressed?
5: I had on a green skirt and waist, green corduroy vest, white collar and cuffs and tie, this jacket and a straw hat. Who was with you? Florence McKay. You
4: were seen in Parkdale that
5: night? I was not. Whoever says they saw me there was telling a lie.
4: Do you know Frank Westwood? No. When were you in Parkdale last?
5: On the first or second Sunday after civic holiday.
4: What were you doing wearing men's clothes?
5: I didn't know that there was any harm in wearing men's clothes.
4: Don't you know it's against the law?
5: Well, if it is, what about Vic Steinberg, who goes to the baseball game in Hamilton in men's clothes and then writes it all up in the news?
4: Where did you meet Flossie McKay?
5: On the corner of Bay and Queen Street, and we went to the opera house. She waited in the corridor while I got the tickets. I got 35-cent tickets, and we went up into the balcony. I gave our checks to the usher and he showed us to our seats. We stayed the play out and then went along Adelaide and up young. I noticed Warneless's clock as we passed. It was either after five minutes past or five minutes wanting to half past ten. About a Sunday world and then we went along Queen Street West. As we were going along, I asked Flossie if she knew that Percy Clark was dead. I'd seen it in the telegram. She said, no, what did I of? I said, I didn't know, but I thought it was strange that Percy was born the day Priestman was shot, and the day he was buried, Frank Westward was shot. Then we went along to Mrs. Watson's, where Flossie was living. I would not go in as it was late, but I told her to tell Mrs. Watson that she'd been to the theater with me, and that was why she was late. She said that was all right, as Mrs. Watson knew she was going. I then went home to Mrs. Dorsey's, and when I got to my room,
6: my clock was just a quarter to eleven. Uh, now, Miss Ford, after you had told Sergeant Reburn your story of the events of that night, then what happened?
5: Well, he left me alone in the office till it was nearly dark. And then? Then he came back and took me into Inspector Stark's office, and I sat down facing Stark. Reburn says, Now, nah, you're making this all up. And I says, No, I ain't. It's the truth. Well, he said you did. You get saucy about it. And I said, well, I got a right to speak up when I'm telling you the truth.
2: And the prisoner goes on to tell of being left in the matron's room to have her supper, of Reburn going in and out, and then finally, well after one o'clock, of Reburn making a new attempt to shake her story, bringing some of Clara's friends in, who contradicted Clara's own story of her movements on the night of the shooting, and finally accusing her of lying about having been at the opera house.
4: You weren't there at all that night, were you?
5: I've told you, yes I was Oh, no
4: you weren't, the young girl says so
5: My God, if she says that, she's telling a lie
4: No, Frank Westwood
5: No, I don't
4: You've never mentioned his name? No Never met him at Mrs. Clark's? No What about this letter? You wrote that
5: I don't know if I did or not
4: Now, look at these words Westwood, Frank You didn't know I had this letter
5: No, I didn't I kept telling him I didn't And then he said Now listen to me, Clara If you don't tell about this, it'll be worse for you If you were my own sister, I couldn't do more for you I repeated that I didn't know anything about it. And then he says, only tell me what your motive was. Say that he insulted you. There's $500 or $600 offered for this. And with that, he winked. If you don't, he says, it'll be the worst for you. But if you tell me all, I won't say a word about it and I'll see that you're a free woman and walk the streets again.
6: (laughs) You mean, Miss Ford, you mean that Sergeant Reaper actually promised you your freedom, if you would confess? Yes, sir. And then what happened?
5: Well, then he looked at his watch and said he had no more time to bother with it, and said, Clara, you're in a net and can't get out. All this time he'd been walking up and down the room, and every time he said it would be the worst for me if I didn't tell, I said I had nothing to tell. That is true. And then? Then at last I got so confused, seeing they were blaming me for what I hadn't done, and... They said they would let me go if I confessed that I said I did it. And then as I had begun, I went on. I told them how I was dressed. And as he said, I had the hat on. I put that in. I thought I might as well make the story to fit everything all the other people had said. But it was a lie from first to last. And the theater story is the truth. I did not shoot Frank Westward or anybody else. I am innocent.
2: At this point, Clara Ford had been in the witness box for two hours and ten minutes. Now, Mr. Dewitt, for the crown, in place of Mr. Osler, who was forced to be absent owing to the critical illness of his wife, cross-examined Clara for another three hours, but was unable to shake either her testimony or her composure. In closing, Dewitt referred to her original plea.
8: There is one matter that I am sure is still puzzling the minds of his lordship and the jury. Why, if you insist that you made your confession because you were bullied by the police, why, in the magistrate's court, did you make a plea of guilty? Lord,
6: I object.
8: I submit that the magistrate
6: had no right to ask my client to plead one way or another at that time. Therefore, the matter cannot be referred to in this court. Yes, Mr. Johnson, I am inclined to agree with you.
8: The witness need not answer that question. Very well, my lord. In that case, I have no further cross-examination.
7: Then we will adjourn until 10 o'clock tomorrow morning.
5: Uh, never see anything like it. Standing in that witness box for five and a half hours and look at her. Smiling and jaunty as if she hadn't a single thing on her mind. (laughs) Only a woman with nerves of iron could stand it. Only a woman with nerves of iron could have committed a murder in cold blood. Emily, you mean you think she really did it? Mm, I only know I'm glad I'm not on the jury and have to make up my mind. One of the things I'm not clear about is whether or not she really was at the theater on the night of October the
2: 6th. Was she at the theater or not? The next morning, the defense called William Melville, an usher at the opera house.
3: Oh, Clara Ford uh, was there one night that week. I saw her.
2: On Saturday,
3: October 6th? I believe... It, yes, I believe it was.
2: The theater constable said that she was there, too.
8: Oh, yeah, I saw her. Uh, Where, Constable? At the theater. I saw her afterwards on Green Street. On Saturday, October the 6th? I think so. Are you sure? Well, uh, no, I can't be quite sure. You can't be quite sure. Are you sure whether or not anybody was with her? Oh, I'm sure of that. No, nobody was with her.
2: Finally, the list of witnesses comes to an end, and Mr. Johnston addresses the jury for two hours and 17 minutes.
6: Gentlemen of the jury, this is a case of murder or nothing. There's no halfway. Your verdict will hang or acquit my client. Our great responsibility rests upon both counsel and jury, and in this instance, the responsibility on the shoulders of myself and my colleague is the greater. As we have had to fight the crown... With all the resources money can command While our client had not one dollar We have taken her case without fee or expectation of reward Because we believe she is innocent
2: He reviews the evidence, the character of the Crown's witnesses And the statement of the dying Frank Westwood That his assassin was a medium-sized man with a mustache
6: Now does that suit the prisoner? Look at her, gentlemen Does that description suit her? Will you accept the detective story in preference to that of a dying boy? And speaking of those same detectives, I ask you to consider their conduct in this case, the manner in which the woman was kept in the office from four o'clock until eleven-thirty, surrounded by detectives without friend or advisor, and with Reburn, as she so tersely put it, digging at her for those seven long hours... Was it any wonder that she, womanlike, would say anything to get out of the clutches of those vultures? Reburn the skilled, experienced, relentless, merciless officer, subjecting her to such brutal, inhuman treatment. Why, it makes me ashamed to be a man, to belong to the same race of beings. But, but in spite of that, I say to you that the action of Clara Ford... In going into the witness box with her life in her hands and with all the charm and confidence of innocence, telling her story is one of the boldest, noblest, most heroic acts ever witnessed in a criminal court in this land. Had she been guilty, she would not have
2: dared to do it. Mr. Johnston is finished at five o'clock, and Mr. Dewitt for the Crown begins... ...by defending the police.
8: Grave and more serious aspersions have been cast upon the detectives. But I contend they treated the prisoner with absolute fairness. She was only detained in the office while the necessary inquiries were made... ...that they might be sure there was sufficient ground for their suspicions. My learned friend has charged them with brutality... ...inhuman treatment and perjury... For if he did not charge them with that, what in God's name did he accuse them of?
2: Stewart picks his way through the evidence, pointing up all the discrepancies, admissions, contradictions, and half-truths, and dwells for a moment on the evidence of Flossie McKay.
8: You cannot ignore the evidence of the 15-year-old girl Flossie McKay, a gentleman of the jury, uh, the accused counting on her to substantiate her statement that they had been together at the opera house on the fatal nights. But what did Flossie say? Clara arranged to take me to the theatre, but she never came there. A categorical denial, gentlemen. And you'll remember how, while she was in the witness box, she broke down and admitted that during her first examination by the police, she had tried to make them believe she had been at the theatre in Clara's company. But... uh, Does this not suggest an attempt to make this little child part of a plot? But it will not work, for this is an honest child, and in this courtroom before you and before his lordship, she will not lie. And now, let me call your attention to the conduct of the prisoner herself in the witness box, and I ask you, was it the demeanour of conscious innocence? ...or of bravado, devilment, and recklessness.
2: The court adjourns at 6.30 and resumes after dinner... ...the jury having elected to continue into the night to reach a conclusion. Spectators are lined out into the street... ...as Chancellor Boyd begins his charge to the jury... ...going quietly and quickly over the evidence... ...while dwelling for a moment or two on the confession and the actions of the police.
7: A singular feature in this case is the prisoner's confession and the fact that she went into the box to explain it away. Her action in doing this has been declared noble and heroic, but you must not regard it thus. She had to testify in order to explain away her confession and clear herself, and you must be very careful in weighing her evidence. There is an old saying, old as the days of Job, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. And the question for you, gentlemen of the jury, is what value under the circumstances can you place upon her testimony? And then her confession. Was it obtained honestly, or was it wrung out of her by Reburn and the other officers as she has alleged? It is a very grave thing to incriminate them on the unsupported testimony of one who stands charged as the prisoner does.
2: In a moment, his lordship is finished, and the jury retire to consider their verdict. In the courtroom, the spectators settle down to what they imagine will be a long wait.
5: There's not much doubt about how the judge feels, do you think, Celia? Doubt. don't. Hum, he as good as told
8: them to find her guilty, I'd say.
2: And that is how most of the spectators feel, so that in one hour and three minutes, so soon that most of them are unprepared for the jury's return, the tension is almost unbearable.
1: Gentlemen of the jury, have you agreed on your verdict? We have. How say you of the prisoner at the bar? Is she guilty or not guilty? Not guilty.
2: For once, decorum was relaxed, and his lordship sat back quietly, writing. Not even an officer of the court raised his voice to demand silence. And then it was seen that the judge was about to speak. Clara Ford, stand up.
7: The jury has acquitted you of the crime with which you were charged. I am not surprised at the result, and for your sake I am glad. I am not sorry at the verdict, as it has cleared your character and also the character of the poor young fellow who is dead. Let me say one word more. Be kind to the young girl Florence McKay, who has shown her love for you, though she was compelled to testify against you. I ask you to be kind to her. Treat her gently and lovingly.
2: You are free.
5: Thank you, sir.
2: In the words of the reporter who covered the case for the Toronto Globe, from that moment all order and decorum was thrown to the winds as the mob rushed round to the dock to shake hands with and congratulate the liberated woman. On arriving at Mrs. Dorsey's, as many as were able crowded into the little shop where the heroine of the hour made a little speech to her admirers and held a levee until after midnight
0: no one else was ever charged with the murder of Frank Westwood The Trial of Clara Ford was produced in Montreal by Rupert Kaplan as part of the series Famous Canadian Trials Script by Alan King based on research by R.S. Lambert Leading roles were played by Eileen Clifford Henry Raymer Percy Rodriguez Albert Miller Paulus Thomas Howard Rishpan Donnelly Rhodes Gordon Atkinson Kenneth Cully, Philip Nielsen, Gary Files, Gladys Richards, and Doris Malice. The program was presented by this station through the facilities of the International Service of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation.